But the scribes and Pharisees and elders, having gathered together with one another, having heard that all the people were murmuring and beating their breasts, saying that if at this death these very great signs happened, behold how just he was, feared, especially the elders, and came before Pilate, begging him and saying, Give over soldiers to us, in order that we may safeguard his burial place for three days, lest, having come, his disciples steal him, and the people accept that he is risen from the death, and they do us wrong. But Pilate gave over to them Petronius, the centurion, with soldiers to safeguard the sepulchre. And with these the elders and scribes came to the burial place, and having rolled a large stone, all who were there, together with the centurion and the soldiers, placed it against the door of the burial place. And they marked it with seven wax seals. And having pitched a tent there, they safeguarded it. But early when the Sabbath was dawning, a crowd came from Jerusalem and the surrounding area in order that they might see the sealed tomb. Now, I am sure that my attentive listeners will recognize that that passage I just read to you did not come from the Bible. Oh, it may sound a lot like a story from the Gospel of Matthew, but it is not quite right. It is, in fact, a passage from the Gospel of Peter. The Gospel of Peter is an ancient Christian gospel that had gone missing for centuries until an extended passage from the gospel was dug up in Egypt about a century ago. The gospel itself, scholars agree, was not written by the Apostle Peter, but by someone else pretending to be Peter. Most scholars also agree that the gospel is pretty much dependent upon other gospels that we have in the New Testament, most particularly the Gospel of Matthew. But it is a fascinating read nonetheless. I wanted to read that particular passage from the gospel because the author does something very interesting. The other Gospels speak of Roman soldiers as part of the story around the crucifixion and burial of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark speaks of a centurion who stood under the cross of Jesus as he died and famously declared, This was truly the Son of God. And the Gospel of Matthew, much like we see here, speaks of soldiers who appear to be Roman soldiers, who are assigned to guard the tomb of Jesus. 
But the Gospel of Peter does something unique. It chooses to give a name, the name Petronius, to one of these Roman soldiers. It names a centurion as Petronius. And I get it. I get it because I have done it dozens of times on this very podcast. When you are telling a story, and especially trying to make a dramatic tale out of some story as important as the crucifixion, it always helps to give your anonymous character a name. It helps to make that character relatable, and it lends verisimilitude to your story. For this reason, I am constantly looking through lists of ancient Hebrew names to find one to give to one of my characters. So the writer of the Gospel of Peter does the same thing with a random Roman in the story. So what? Ah, but what if he didn't choose a random name? What if he chose a very real name of a very historical person and did it in order to say something very particular about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Well, then we should be willing to look at the story of that real historical figure to understand what the gospel writer might be saying. So, what is his story? This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 7.7 Petronius's Very Bad Weeks. Men of the Third Legion, Second Cohort, First Century, I am your new commanding officer. My name is Publius Petronius. I command you in the name of the Emperor Tiberius Ave Caesar. Ave! At ease, men. Now, I know that most of you are new to the province of Judea. Some of you just got off the boat from fair Italia. So I want to tell you a few things about this hellhole that you've landed yourselves in. Judea is, without a doubt, the worst place that you will serve during your entire military careers. You will hate every day of service in this province. 
you will beg me to transfer you someplace else, any place else. What is wrong with Judea? It is not the countryside. It can be beautiful, though it is very dry, and water rations will be tight. No, it is not the land. It is the people. They hate you. They think that you don't belong here. But you are the soldiers of Rome, and Rome goes wherever it bloody wants. The Judeans are also crazy. Absolutely nuts. They do not have gods like the civilized people of the world do. In fact, you won't find a single statue to a single god in the entire province, not even to the emperor. Can you imagine that? All we do for these ungrateful barbarians, and they won't even bow down and worship the emperor. No. They worship this god that you can't even see. I know. It's hard to believe in this day and age. But there you have it. So, day in and day out, these Judeans will stare sullenly at you. Will only do what you tell them to do when you threaten them. Whatever they can get away with that will make your lives miserable, they will do. And that's most of the time. Oh, but not this week. This week is special. This is the beginning of what they call Passover week in Jerusalem. One of the interminable festivals that these people celebrate. I don't know too much about it, but apparently they say that a long time ago, this invisible god of theirs saved them from being slaves in another country. Where was it, Optio? Oh, that's right. It was in Egypt. Their god said that they didn't have to be slaves in Egypt during a Passover week a long time ago. Set them free, I guess. So, you know what happens every Passover week now? Every bloody Judean in the whole country comes to Jerusalem for the whole week. There are people everywhere. And they spend the whole week talking about how they shouldn't be slaves to Rome either. And when people get talking like that, it doesn't take much for some fool to come along and push them over the edge to get them talking about how this annoying god of theirs wants them to chase us Romans right out of their land. In short, this city becomes a tinderbox during this week. 
All it takes is a spark. Some idiot coming along preaching revolution and you will have a very bad situation on your hands. Now, our loyal procurator, Pontius Pilate, Ave Cesar, Ave. knows all of this very well. And so, for several years now, he has ordered extra troops to occupy the city during this week. This year, you are those troops. Your job, first and foremost, is to be disciplined, orderly, and absolutely menacing. You are to make these people, who only seem to understand brute force, see that they will be in a world of hurt if they so much as breathe wrong in your presence. You are Rome's best. Your armor will shine. You will be in perfect step. You will respond with immediate brutality to the slightest provocation. You will make these people fear you and even admire you in spite of themselves. And now, soldiers of the Third Legion, Second Cohort, First Century, attention! You will proceed to march in an orderly fashion through the west gate of the city to occupy it. Right turn! By the right, quick march! So Petronius led his soldiers through the west gate of Jerusalem. He knew that even if the Jews hated him and his troops, he could make an impression on them. Roman troops on a march past could do that. He was expecting to attract a lot of attention, that the people would come out if not to cheer exactly, at least to gawk. After all, who can resist a parade? But as they marched on, Petronius found that the streets of Jerusalem were surprisingly quiet for a city in the middle of a festival. Petronius turned to his optio, his second in command. Where are all the people? Petronius asked. The Optio didn't say anything. He just raised his eyes to look out across the city to the far side of the Temple Mount, where you could just see the road that led down from the Mount of Olives to the east gate of the city. Petronius followed his gaze, and his eyes widened in surprise. The hillside was alive with people, and they were waving palm branches and cloaks and obviously making a great deal of noise. 
though he could hardly hear it from here. What the bloody Hades is all that about? Petronius couldn't stop himself from muttering. Petronius's eyesight was pretty good, and he could just make out what was at the center of the mob. It appeared to be a man, just one man, riding on a colt. That was it. Imagine that! How could people possibly find one guy on a colt more exciting than an entire century of men in shining helmets with the brooms on top of them and everything? But clearly they did. Maybe it was the sheer contrast between the two processions. On the one hand, you had the pomp and circumstance of well-trained soldiers and the unmistakable menace of the sharp spears and swords. On the other, you had a simply dressed man on a beast that no one would ever use in a military attack. The two processions were so different that the man on the colt showed up the military procession for what it was, a display of nothing but the power of violence and greed that had no beauty or hope to it. That was part of it. But, of course, Petronius didn't know that there was also an ancient prophecy, well known among the Jews, that there would be a new kind of king someday who would come to his people riding on a colt and who would establish a kingdom of peace and of freedom where all the people could live in prosperity instead of all the wealth going to a few. That was the real contrast, the kingdom of God against the empire of Caesar. Petronius may not have understood all of the symbolism in what he saw, but he understood enough to know that he dare not allow this kind of thing to go on much longer. But he was also wise enough to know that it was not the time for a direct confrontation that would only inflame the passions that he could already see at work in the mob. So he sent a runner to the local authorities, the high priest, and his council of Pharisees and Sadducees. They were tedious people, but at least they had learned to respect the Romans and what they could do with a legion of armed men. They would do what he asked. They would find some way to get the mob to calm down before something really bad happened. That having been taken care of, Petronius led his men on 
until they deployed at the very foot of the Temple Mount. They would not enter the actual Temple grounds. That was part of the deal that had been worked out between the governor and the local council. But they would be watching. Their orders were clear. If anyone caused a disturbance in the temple during the Passover festival, they would find that person. They would deal with them swiftly and brutally, as only the Romans could. After a while, some Pharisees came by to report that they had confronted the man on the colt as they were ordered. They said that his name was Jesus, a Galilean, in town for the festival like so many others. They told this Jesus the situation, that he had to tell his followers to be quiet or else there would be trouble. But they didn't know what to say to his reply. I tell you, he said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Ah, thought Petronius, this one is not just your run-of-the-mill preacher. He's a deep thinker, he is. We'll have to keep an eye on this Jesus from Galilee. of the 3rd Legion, 2nd Cohort, 1st Century. Ave Caesar! Ave! Men, at ease. It's been an interesting week. Well, interesting would be one word for it. I guess I told you that Judea would not be a picnic. You didn't believe me, but your old centurion, Publius Petronius, does know a thing or two. But we've done our duty, done everything that Governor Pilate asked of us and more. We've kept the peace in the city, kept the rabble who live in this place from expressing their treason against the empire and the emperor. And when some foolish sod went too far, and created a disturbance in the temple, actually disrupting the sales of the sacrificial animals on one of the busiest days of the year. We did what had to be done. We couldn't go into the temple, of course. That would have started a riot. But as soon as we could get him alone, we took him in. But the thing is, that he didn't seem like your ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill insurgent. He didn't fight back. He didn't even struggle. Worst of all, he wasn't even afraid of us. Everyone is afraid of us. 
We are the legions of Rome, but not him. There were times when it seemed as if he was almost sorry for us. We ferried him around while the governor and his friends here decided how exactly they would deal with him, as if there were ever much question about it. And then yesterday, who should be called on to take him and a few other rebel scum out to crucify them. But the men of the Third Legion, Second Cohort, First Century. Now, I have heard the rumors that have been spreading around in the ranks. Don't you deny it. I know everything that is said in those tents. It is being said that when that man died, and I was standing there on guard at the foot of his cross. I said something like that he must have been the Son of God. Well, I do admit that I said it, but I was caught up in the emotion of the moment. There was something about how he died that made it seem like the world was upside down. But only for the moment. I'm over it now. To call such a man a son of God would be an act of treason. For there is only one son of a God that a Roman soldier owes allegiance to, and that is Tiberius Caesar, son of Augustus, the God. It was just that this man got me so confused that, for a while, I forgot myself. But now that he's been taken care of, I'll be fine. He's in his tomb. And all of the disturbing ideas that he brought with him can rot in there with him. Rome has triumphed, as it always does. Peace and order as defined by the emperor, is the victor. And the man's tomb can stand as the symbol that nothing will ever change that. And that brings me, men, to our new assignment. Quite in the ranks. I know that a lot has fallen on you in the last few days, but we have been ordered to guard the tomb of this man. Now, we Romans are a superstitious lot. It is a bad omen to be assigned to work the graveyard shift. You don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. But we are men under authority, and we do what we are told. I have to wonder, though, why they think this is necessary. They say it's because they want to make sure that this man's followers don't steal his body and claim some sort of divine miracle. But that is ridiculous. I've never seen such a lost, dispirited bunch of losers. They didn't even dare to show their faces at his crucifixion. And there's supposed to be a danger 
that now they're going to pull off a daring robbery of a corpse? Don't make me laugh. No. There's something else they're afraid of. But it doesn't make sense. Our side is won. Even if it doesn't feel much like a victory. I'll have to think on this. But first, men, we have a duty. The men of the 3rd Legion, 2nd Cohort, 1st Century, will report to the tomb for guard duty. By the right, quick, march! Centurion Petronius surveyed the tomb. A hole burrowed into the side of a hill. Its entrance now covered with a massive stone that it took ten of his men to roll into place. As if that weren't enough, a seal had also been put into place. The seal was only made of wax, of course, and it wouldn't be hard for someone to break it, except for what was embossed upon it. The emblem of Governor Pilate. As such, it indicated that to break that seal was to challenge the authority of the governor, and ultimately of the emperor, Tiberius Caesar himself. In a sense, it was as if the governor was putting his very reputation on the line just to keep that tomb closed. It was overkill. The stone, the seal, an entire company of crack soldiers, and for a man who was dead. Petronius had been there at the foot of the cross and had no doubt that the man was fully and completely dead. Who sets a guard to keep a dead man in his tomb? It couldn't be because they were afraid his disciples would steal the body. That was just a pretext. They must be afraid of something else. They had beaten this Jesus, completely and utterly. He came along and said that things could be different, that outcasts could belong, that grace and love were more powerful than guilt and fear, that the meek, rather than the strong, would inherit the earth. He said that people didn't have to live in the empire of Caesar if they didn't want to, that they could live in the kingdom of God instead, a kingdom that belonged to the poor. And, get this, he said that those who trusted him could even have eternal life. You know, crazy stuff. But... By crucifying him and putting him in this tomb, the Empire said no to all of those dangerous ideas. It reasserted its authority. The stone and seal on the entrance 
were like the lid on a can of worms. They were the cork in the genie's bottle, the twist tie on the cat in the bag. That's why it mattered. That's why Petronius's troops were there. And Petronius understood that. He made every arrangement that he could. Surely nothing in heaven or on earth could possibly disturb the entrance to that tomb. He took one more circuit of the sentries he had set. Everyone was awake and alert, and so, exhausted after a very long week, Petronius threw himself to the ground to catch a few minutes of sleep before the sun rose. Seven years later, Petronius was still haunted by what had happened as the next morning dawned. He's awakened suddenly when the earth shook. The men who had been assigned to him to watch the tomb were all in confusion. What many of them reported subsequently simply hadn't made any sense. He never managed to make rational sense of what had happened. And eventually he concluded that whatever it was, it had been a kind of a vindication of what he had seen when the man had died. Just seeing that spectacle of a man being willing to put his own life on the line for the sake of a whole people, not fighting back, not even resisting, had stayed with him. Yes, having muttered at the cross that he was the son of God or something like that, might have been a ridiculous, not to mention treasonous thing to say, but he couldn't shake the idea that there was something divine in such an act. He especially couldn't shake that idea in the light of what he was dealing with right now. Petronius's career had kind of taken off over the last seven years. He advanced to previously undreamed of heights. As a man of senatorial rank, he now ruled over the province of Syria. But political success was not always all that it was cracked up to be. The legions always used to joke about the madness of Emperor Tiberius. Back in the old days, they used to think that there couldn't be a worse emperor. But it turned out that there could. The new emperor, Gaius Caesar, had brought nothing but trouble to those in positions of authority. The men of the army had a nickname for him. Back when his father had been leading the army in Germany, 
the troops there had adopted the little boy as a kind of a mascot. One day, when Gaius had been playing with some off-duty soldiers, tromping around in their outsized army boots, they started calling him Little Boots, Caligula in Latin. The name stuck. But what had been so endearing in a little boy was no longer quite so amusing in a man. In many ways, though he ruled the known world, Caligula was still that little boy stomping around in outsized boots. He would certainly never fill his father's sandals, much less those of his great-grandfather Augustus. His immaturity was particularly on display of late. He was especially touchy when he felt at all slighted, and he was definitely feeling really slighted lately by the Judeans. As emperor, Caligula was worshipped as a god by the peoples of the empire, all of them, save one. The Judeans stubbornly refused to give to their imperial master this simple and polite recognition, for they insisted that they would serve no other god than their own. Augustus and then Tiberius had both been wise enough not to press this issue. Knowing how troublesome the Judeans could be, they had tolerated this little quirk of theirs. But Caligula was different. In a fit of impatience, he had only just sent an order to Petronius, the man in charge. The emperor's command was that a statue of the god-emperor must be erected among the Judeans, and not just any place. It must be given a place of honor within their great temple at Jerusalem. Petronius knew that this was a bad plan, that it would only lead to disaster, but what could he do? He was a man under authority. He could only follow orders. And so he was taking delivery of the statue and laying plans to take it to Jerusalem. And because he was no fool, he had ordered up four legions to accompany him. But the Judeans heard about what was going on, and they came out. Came out in overwhelming numbers all the way to where he was in Phoenicia to protest. They were there in their thousands. He dared to say, in their tens of thousands. And they were all crying out that they would not tolerate such a thing. 
One day Petronius went out to them. He cautioned them. Don't you realize what you are doing? To resist Caesar in this thing is to make war against all the might of Rome. You are not ready for the great wrath and power that will be brought down around you. But the people cried out that they would not fight. They would not make war against the power of Rome. They would die before seeing their laws transgressed. And then Petronius witnessed something that he never imagined he would see in all of his life. One by one, the various families, groupings, and tribes of the people fell upon their faces, and they bared their throats. They promised that they would not resist. His legionaries were welcome to slaughter all of them. The very sight of such a thing moved Petronius deeply. He didn't understand it. How could anybody act in such a way, valuing the traditions of their people more than their own lives? But he could not help but make a connection between what he was seeing and something he had seen almost a decade before. He realized that there was a power, a divine power, in people who do such things. He realized, all of a sudden, that he was dealing with a power that was greater, perhaps, than all the legions of Rome. That was a realization that shook him to the core. When Petronius wrote his letter to Caligula, he knew exactly what the result would be. One simply doesn't say no to an emperor but Petronius hadn't felt as if he had any choice. Yes, he was a man under authority. He was a man who existed only to follow the orders that he was given. But in the last few years, he had seen extraordinary demonstrations that had convinced him that there must exist a power more potent than that of Rome. He knew that he could not carry through with what he had been ordered. He respectfully told Caligula that what the God Emperor had ordered could not be done. As he signed the letter, he knew that he was signing his own death warrant. If he was lucky, he might be summoned back to Rome to face judgment. If fortune favored him, he would be given an opportunity to bid goodbye to his family 
and the people that he loved. That was about the best he could hope for. The outcome was assured. There was no way that Caesar would leave him alive after this. And so the letter was entrusted to a courier and sent off on the long journey to Rome. It was weeks before Caligula received it, but when it was read for him, his anger burned as hot as if Petronius had only justified him. Caligula immediately dictated a letter back. It was short and to the point. He informed his servant that he expected him to die at his own hands immediately upon receiving the emperor's response. The letter was sent using the emperor's fastest courier from the first ship to leave the harbor. In January of the fourth year of the rule of Gaius Caesar, during the consulship of Gaius Caesar and Gnaeus Centius Saturninus, several soldiers from the Praetorian Guard stormed into the Imperial Palace. They took Gaius Caesar, who was apparently shaking in his little boots, and killed him. It seemed that Caligula had finally gone too far in his tyranny and foolishness, and somebody decided that he needed to be stopped. When the dust finally settled after the night of slaughter, the members of the Senate looked around for someone to save the Empire from total chaos and they finally chose the only family member still standing, Claudius Caesar. He was hailed as emperor. The news that Caligula was finally dead spread quickly. It was welcomed by many, but no one welcomed the news with more relief than a man named Publius Petronius in the far-off province of Syria. This big news, this world-changing news, somehow found a way to get to him first, before the letter sent to him from Caligula's own hand, ordering him to commit suicide. Was it just a chance that the one message came to him before the other? Was it merely a matter of fortune that the events in Rome somehow gave him the freedom to follow his own conscience concerning the events in Jerusalem? I don't think you will ever convince Petronius of anything other than the truth that he had been vindicated for doing what was right. Much like another man he had once admired as he stood 
beneath his cross. I feel as if I ought to be clear about a few things. I do not think that the centurion who stood underneath the cross of Jesus and might have been carried away by the events that he saw that afternoon was the same man who, about seven years later, saved the Jewish nation from a conflagration that might have destroyed it there and then by refusing to do what Caligula had ordered him to do and installing a statue of the emperor in the temple in Rome. The idea that a Roman official could have gone from a rank of centurion to legate in such a short period of time, if at all, makes it seem quite unlikely. I'm not even sure that the writer of the Gospel of Peter thought that such a thing was possible. But I do suspect that he was a great admirer of legate Publius Petronius and the extraordinarily courageous thing that he did. And I do suspect that, because of that, he decided to give his hero a cameo in his account of the death and resurrection of Jesus. I just thought that that was a very interesting, dramatic touch. And I decided to take his cue and expand that cameo and see where it led me. I hope you enjoyed the journey and that it maybe gave you a bit of a different perspective on how the events surrounding the death of Jesus, as told in the Gospels, could have been seen and understood by the people who were part of the occupying force that was stationed in Judea in those days. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. And do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The episode featured the music Ah Da and Running Fanfare by Kevin McLeod, and Skaga by Alexander Nakarada. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible and on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retelling the Bible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>